0: Good morning everyone. My name is Mark and I get to serve alongside of wonderful staff members like Stacy and Levi. Um, It is a privilege to be one of your pastors. Well, we're in a new year and in a new year we're in a new sermon series through the Old Testament book of Daniel as as Levi just, just mentioned. And if you grew up Going to Sunday school or attending children's church, you're likely familiar with at least two popular stories from this book. Shout them out if you know them. Okay, I heard lions and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Rack, Shack, and Benny. If you've been indoctrinated by Veggie Tales, um, some of you may not know those stories, and that's okay, because I'm excited that you'll get to learn them through our sermon series. But if you're like me, um, And you have heard those stories, Um, you may still be quite unfamiliar with large sections of this book. You know, the um, first part of the book, the first six chapters are are beautiful narratives. They contain beautiful narratives, and they're fairly easy to understand, fairly easy to grasp, and we teach them to kids. But then there's the second half of the book, and it's heavy sledding, okay? I just, I, I won't candy coat it. It's difficult. It's called apocalyptic literature. It contains dreams and visions and prophecies about the future. It's confusing. You're like, what is on earth does this mean? Well, Lord willing, we are going to walk through all 12 chapters of this book. And as we do, we're going to discover that both distinct sections, the easy to understand part and the confusing part, all work together to communicate one unified theme, Um, When Ryan and I are working together, Ryan's our other teaching pastor. We're working together on preparing for this uh, message series. Um, Ryan summarized the theme in this way, and I I think it's great, and I'd like for us to learn it. So say this out loud, loud with me. The theme of the book of Daniel is this. Say it out loud. In all, God is above all. One more time. In all, God is above all. In other words, God is sovereign over everything. He's moving all of history to his intended ends, and he's always working for the good of his people and the glory of his name. No matter what you might be tempted to believe, based on your personal circumstances, in all, God is above all. The ESV Study Bible puts it this way. The book's central theme is God's sovereignty over history, empires, and kings, all the kingdoms of this world will come to an end and will be replaced by the Lord's kingdom, which will never pass away. Though trials and difficulties will continue for God's people up until the end, those who are faithful will be raised to glory, honor, and everlasting life in this final kingdom. You know, the world has experienced a lot of saber-rattling, hasn't it? As rulers uh, like Vladimir Putin clamor for power and throw their weight around. These rulers come And these rulers go. But the book of Daniel points to an unshakable kingdom that stands above all the shakable kingdoms that inevitably rise and fall with the passage of time. The Egyptian empire, where is it? Gone. The Assyrian empire, the Babylonian empire, gone. The Persian empire, gone. The Greek empire, gone. Doesn't mean like there's still not influence from those, but they're gone. The Roman Empire, gone. The Mongol Empire, gone. The Ottoman Empire, gone. The Spanish Empire, gone. The British, this is not an exhaustive list. I'm just hitting the highlights. The British Empire, largely dismissed, pretty much gone. Hitler's Third Reich, gone. The American Empire, if we can call it that. Well, it's still sort of here, but it's going to be just like all the rest. All of them shakable. Daniel points us to God's unshakable kingdom. That's never going to end. But here's the rub: You and I live where? In a shakable kingdom where the truth of God's sovereignty over everything is oftentimes difficult to believe. Around us, we see wars, genocide, displacement, disease, natural disaster. Many of these seem like distant threats, but some, form of bro- some forms of brokenness hit us at home. We enter into our lives on an everyday basis, and we start asking, is all, in, in all that I'm going through, is God really above all? It, because it certainly doesn't feel like it. It certainly doesn't feel like he's control when this is happening to me. When our circumstances change our life to the point that it's no longer what we thought it would be or hoped it might be, the main question we usually ask is this, where is God? Where is God? Is he really in control? Is he who I thought he was? Can he be trusted? Does he care? Where is God? And I I would imagine that many of you are sitting here this morning with questions just like that. And far from being a nice little story for children in Sunday school class, Daniel is going to help us answer these big questions. Where is God? Is he really in control? Is he who I thought he was? Can he be trusted? Does he really care about me? The book of Daniel is not primarily a book about Daniel. It's a book about Daniel's God, who's the lone, sovereign, good ruler of the world, who can be trusted despite every circumstance in this world that appears to give us reasons to believe otherwise. And if anyone had reasons to question the presence of God, and his sovereignty over their circumstances, it was a prisoner of war, a young man named Daniel, a victim of human trafficking and violent sexual assault. Let's dive into his story, Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Daniel is the author of this book, and he begins very matter-of-factly, stating details that put his story in its historical context. The third year of King Jehoiakim's reign helps us pinpoint the year as 605 BC. So this is well after Israel has been divided into two kingdoms after King Solomon's death. There's the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom of Israel, okay? Well, in 722 BC, you know what happens to the Northern Kingdom? Well... Based on God's judgment for wickedness and injustice and rebellion against God's law, God raises up the Assyrian empire. They come in, they take out the northern empire. And so what's left? The southern empire, which was the northern one retained the name Israel. The the southern one was called Judah. Well, now it's 605 BC and the Assyrians have come and they have gone. Because the Babylonians are now throwing their weight around the world, they throw overthrow the Babylon, 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 Sorry, Babylon overthrows the Assyrian Empire, and now King Nebuchadnezzar is on the loose and making things wreaking havoc in the world. Saying, "I'm large and in charge," and now the southern kingdom is at risk. 117 years later, after the northern kingdom gets carried off by the Assyrians. So verse 1 gives us the historical context. But Daniel begins to give us the theological significance in verse 2. Yes, Babylonian Babylon has come, King Nebuchadnezzar has come with his armies. He's laid siege to Jerusalem. And now the theological significance in verse 2. And the Lord gave... I highlighted that for a reason. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, another name for Babylon, to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. What we need to highlight here is that Daniel doesn't emphasize King Nebuchadnezzar's power. On the contrary, he points out what? The Lord gave Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Jehoiakim was the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. Daniel recognized recognized that God is sovereign over all of this. God is the one acting behind the scenes to raise up one earthly king and remove another. Judas king, Jehoiakim, was a wicked king who did not follow God's law, even though God had given warning after warning after warning through his prophets for decades leading up to this, saying, Judgment is coming, Judah, if you don't clean up your act. But Jehoiakim just ignores it and takes it, the Israelites, the, the, those living in the kingdom of Judah, away from God's law, further down the path of disobedience. So God raises up Nebuchadnezzar as his instrument of divine judgment. And right from the get-go, Daniel wants us to know in no uncertain terms who's behind all of this, who's really in control. It's not Nebuchadnezzar. No, Nebuchadnezzar is just a puppet in the hands of a sovereign God. In fact, if you have your Bibles open, there's three things I want you to circle or highlight. Three times in Daniel chapter one, Daniel makes reference to the sovereign hand of God working behind the scenes throughout this narrative. You see it in verse two that we just saw, the Lord gave. It comes up again in verse 9, God gave. It comes up again in verse 17, God gave. Daniel wants us to know, no uncertain terms, that God is clearly the one in control here. He's authoring all of this. Nebuchadnezzar, however, he's quite ignorant of God's sovereign hand, his sovereign rule, which can be seen by the fact that he boldly raids the temple of God in Jerusalem, perhaps even taking the Ark of the Covenant. Carrying a bunch of the treasures away, the sacred items away to Babylon and putting them in the treasury of his God. See, Nebuchadnezzar wrongly believed that to be given military might and power in the world meant that the God he worshiped, Marduk, the patron God of Babylon, was stronger than Yahweh, the God of Israel. And he steals these items out of Jerusalem's temple as a symbolic act of dominance. In his bravado and pride, Nebuchadnezzar has no clue that he's simply a hand puppet being controlled by the sovereign God of Israel. But sacred temple vessels aren't the only thing that Nebuchadnezzar stole. Look at verse three. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Chaldeans is just another name for Babylonians. Now, it's easy to read this passage and miss the shocking reality of what's really going on here. Today, we would put three labels on this. Human trafficking, violent sexual assault, and coerced cultural assimilation. Nebuchadnezzar kidnaps the best and brightest teenagers in Jerusalem. Royal family members. Young men who might have been in line for the, for, to be the next king. Probably 14, 15 years old. He rips them away from their homes and families. Marches them 700 miles away to Babylon which is in modern-day Iraq, likely in shackles the entire way. This would have been a horrific journey, all under oversight of who? The chief eunuch. Some of you are like, what's a eunuch? I won't candy-coat it. A eunuch is a castrated male slave who served in the king's palace. Ancient pagan kings didn't want anyone challenging their dominance or messing with their harem, so they would castrate all their male slaves. It was just common practice in that day. And if Daniel and his friends are put under the charge of the chief eunuch to stand in the king's palace, guess what? The text is strongly implying here that not only were they forcibly kidnapped and enslaved, they were castrated and made eunuchs as well. Now, put yourself in Daniel's shoes. I don't know about you, but I'd definitely be thinking at this point, as I'm in shackles, being torn away from my home, everything that I know in life, marching 700 miles to a foreign country that's totally unfamiliar, being violated in ways I never thought possible, I'd be thinking, where is God? Does he care? Does he even see me? Does he even know? Is he even real? Where are you, God? So how on earth was Daniel able to see God's sovereign hand in all of this while he's going through it, while he's going through such horrific circumstances? How is he able to hold on to his faith? Well, being part of the royal family, Daniel was well-educated. And although I can't prove it, being well-educated meant that he likely knew his Old Testament well. He had likely studied the scroll of Isaiah that was written over 100 years earlier through the hand of the prophet. And in Isaiah 39, verses 6 and 7, we read this prophecy that was given to King Hezekiah, who was King Jehoiakim's great-great-grandfather, of whom Daniel himself was very likely a direct descendant as part of the royal household of David. We read this, 100 years earlier, Daniel most likely knew this, most likely they had read this, maybe even memorized it. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who will come from you, who you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. What is happening to Daniel and his friends is a direct fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah some hundred years earlier. It wasn't a surprise. Daniel is seeing all this going down and he's thinking, oh, it's happening. Stinks that it's me. <laughs> but God is keeping his promise to judge. And if God is faithful, To keep his promise to judge, then maybe, just maybe, I can trust him to keep his promise to save. And so, when we ask the question, is God still present when all hell breaks loose around us? What would Daniel answer? Yes. Yes, he is. Because we see his track record. He's a faithful God. He says what, what he says he is going to do, he does. He's faithful. He keeps his promises. We can trust him. He's still there. Let's read on in verse 5. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate. And of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah, the royal tribe. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. These four Jewish boys obviously had Jewish names, each of them containing L or A, ah, referencing God or the covenant name of God. For instance, Daniel's name in Hebrew means God is my judge. Hananiah means Yahweh has been gracious. But in Babylon, where they are being forcefully assimilated into the pagan culture there, they are each given names that reference a Babylonian deity, a false god. And what we as readers are supposed to see in this is an attempt by the Babylonians to completely strip away their identity, but not just their identity, strip away their relationship with their Hebrew God. I honestly can't imagine what Daniel and his friends went through and what this felt like for them. It must have been so disorienting. And at this point in the narrative, I think it's important for us to observe what the text does not say. The text does not say, and an angel of the Lord appeared to Daniel and his friends and said, Don't worry, I'm going to take care of you. It's all going to be okay. That's not there. That's not there. I imagine Daniel was calling out to God and met with silence. <clears throat> Daniel and his teenage friends are in a foreign land. Forcibly taken from their homes, everything familiar to them, gone. Violently assaulted, stripped of their identity. And so far, God is silent in the story, which makes what we read in verse 8 fairly remarkable. Let's read it together. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Although drinking wine was not prohibited by the Mosaic law, it's quite likely that the rest of the king's food would have been anything but kosher. Okay? And although Daniel and his friends don't have control of hardly anything in their lives at this point, Daniel um, resolves to stay faithful to his God. And he makes a bold attempt to resist the cultural assimilation process, at least in the area of the food that they were given to eat. He knows that he cannot help being brought into Babylon but he's going to make every attempt to keep Babylon from being brought into him. The resistance in Daniel's request would have been a big risk. If God doesn't show up in some way, Daniel could be in trouble here. Let's look what happens, verse nine. And say it out loud with me. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Right here is the second time that Daniel acknowledges God's sovereign and gracious fingerprints as we go along. So far, God has been totally silent in Daniel's ordeal. And the question we should ask at this point is this. Is God still present when he seems silent? Is God still there when he seems silent? And Daniel would tell us what? Yes. Yes, he's still there. And God gave favor. Let's read on in verse 10. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who has assigned you your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are worse, in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Although God moved to give the chief eunuch compassion on Daniel and his friends... This this guy is still fearful to grant Daniel's request. But note Daniel's wisdom in verse 11. Daniel isn't going to give up. He's not going to roll over. Verse 11. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So Daniel's putting himself in God's hands here. After all he's been through, he's still trusting. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were in better appearance and fatter in flesh than all the ewes who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. And all the kids in the room said, ew. (laughs) This is amazing. God quietly honors Daniel's attempts to stay faithful and resist the Babylonian assimilation process. God gives him a clue, albeit a subtle one. After all that you've gone through, all that you're suffering, I'm still with you, I'm still for you, I'm still at work, I'm still in control, I see you. I'm still present, I'm still working behind the scenes. Is God still present when he seems silent? Yes. Which leads us to a third time that Daniel points out the gracious and sovereign fingerprints of God in the narrative here in verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding and all visions and dreams. Again, Daniel makes a source of his success and achievements clear to us As the readers, he and his friends had to be faithful to study. Sure, (laughs) they had to work hard for these three years. But Daniel acknowledges that it was God who gave them learning and skill and wisdom and understanding. God is the author of their success in Babylon. Verse 18. At the end of the time, three years, when the king had commanded they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. These four likely eunuchs standing there, ready to be evaluated. Verse 19, the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. I guess it should be Mishael, but whichever. Therefore, they stood before the king. Verse 20, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. We mustn't miss the significance of this. These four young men who chose to remain faithful to their God in exile, royal members of David's household, Hebrews, God's people, his official representatives on earth at that time, in spite of all the humiliation they had to endure, now have strategic positions in the household of the most powerful person in the world, King Nebuchadnezzar. Even amidst God's judgment on the nation of Israel, he is graciously at work in the lives of his people, and at the same time, he's subversively at work in the life of the Babylonian empire (laughs) and its fate, who he's merely using as a hand puppet for his purposes. Is God absent? No. Did God make a mistake? No. Is God out of control? No. Is God unfaithful to his people? No. On the contrary, is God faithful to his people in exile? Is God sovereign over their circumstances? You can say it. Is God at work behind the scenes to bring about his purposes and his promises? Is God present with his people? Yes. And then our text concludes with one short but very significant verse that we would be remiss to skip over. Verse 21, which I have labeled as 20 for some reason. But it's verse 21. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Real short verse. But here's what you need to know. This verse hits the fast-forward button. Well, how do we know that? Well, because it mentions Cyrus. Who is King Cyrus? He's not even Babylonian. He's Persian. What does that mean? That means that Babylon is gone. (laughs) Cyrus was the Persian king who conquered the Babylonian empire 66 years later in 539 BC. This verse is small but its implications are huge. First, this seemingly insignificant teenage boy from Jerusalem named Daniel outlasted the powerful Babylonian empire. Mighty Babylon has fallen, but God's faithful servant still stands. I love how one commentator puts it. So in verse 21, Babylon, the hairy-chested, macho brute of the world, has dropped with a thud into the mausoleum of history while frail Daniel, servant of the Most High God, is still on his feet. Secondly, between 6 and 5 B.C. when Daniel was taken into captivity and in 539 B.C. are 66 long years. This means that Daniel would have been over 80 years old when Babylon fell. I would imagine that throughout those 66 years, Daniel dreamed of home. Daniel's heart longed for rescue. He would have longed to return to his homeland in Israel, see his family again. brings us to a third question is God still present when he doesn't rescue on our timetable is God still present when rescue doesn't come on our timetable the message of the book of Daniel gives us the answer any guesses yes yes he is God's timetable is different. He's planning an eternal rescue for his people. He's present with us while we wait for that hope in an unshakable kingdom that will be set up on this earth by King Jesus who will wipe away every tear from every eye. There will be no more sin, sorrow, brokenness, death, disease, all gone. That is our hope. Our hope is not in what's shakable. It's in what is unshakable. It is in what is coming. And is God still present with us while we walk through this shakable kingdom waiting for the unshakable one? Yes, my friend, he is. Let me ask you some questions. Are the circumstances of your life different than what you had hoped they would be? Does God seem silent in the midst of your pain? Does what you perceive as rescue from him seem like it will never come? If you can say yes to any of those questions, you're in good company. And let me ask you another. Will you trust God anyway? Will you trust God anyway? Will you trust the one who in all is above all? Will you trust God anyway? As the worship team makes their way back to the stage, I want to share one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It says this. Trust in the Lord. Let's read this together. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. All your ways, acknowledge him. God, you're God, and I'm not. I'm not in control, but you are. I trust that you're going to make straight my paths. This passage doesn't promise that God will make our paths smooth, does it? It's a bumpy ride in a fallen world. I'm not, we can all acknowledge that. But it does promise us that God will put us right where he wants us to be for our ultimate good and his ultimate glory. Will you trust God anyway? Whatever it is that you're walking through right now, will you, like Daniel, put your hope in an unshakable kingdom that's coming? And will you trust the God who walks with you through this shakable one? He's not absent in your pain, he's not callous to your prayers. He hears you, he sees you, he loves you. And my friend, he's with you. Father, thank you for Daniel's story. And as we dive into it in coming weeks, speak to our hearts through it. Remind us of your sovereignty over all things. And stir in our hearts a hope and a desire and a longing for the unshakable kingdom that's coming. Our hearts get so wrapped up in the shakable one that's already here. The one that comes and goes with the passage of time. But we have a promise, we have an inheritance as your sons and daughters, sons and daughters of the King in a kingdom that's coming. Tune our hearts towards that. Remind us of your goodness and your faithfulness to us because we know the end of this story amidst all the crap that we're living through right now. Hold our hand, help us to feel and see your presence when it's hard to feel and see. Amen.